News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Just how much money does Hockey Canada have anyway? Well, turns out more than most of us probably realized. The Globe and Mail has done a deep dive into the audited finances of the organization. So let's talk about what they found out. You can read the results at theglobeandmail.com. But joining us now is Grant Robertson, Globe and Mail senior writer. Grant, thanks for being back with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. First of all, how did you gather this information? Well, it wasn't easy, uh, but it was it was possible. Um, Hockey Canada doesn't, uh, you know, voluntarily post its financial uh, information on its website or in its annual reports. They're very opaque about their finances, um, which is which is odd for a lot of people because they're an organization that gets a lot of public money. They, you know, they get government funding. A lot of money comes from Canadians through registration fees, but they don't divulge a lot of, of information about, you know, how much is coming in and where that where that money goes. Um, some sports organizations do. You know, basketball Canada Canada basketball does. You know, curling is another example of a sport that posts its financials on, on its website. Uh, Hockey Canada doesn't, um, but they do have to file them to the Canada Revenue Agency, and we were able to get them through the CRA, um, you know, through essentially the access to information process, um, which is never easy for Canadians if if everyone's ever tried it. It takes a long time, but the CRA, given the importance of this issue, was able to, you know, expedite the request for us, Uh, and um, I had basically asked them for every you know, all the financials that they have available. And that took us back to uh, 2003, 2004. Okay. And what I noticed too, in reading through your work is that what you got clearly showed that something changed at Hockey Canada because a lot more money started coming in. Yeah. You know, I, I think we all expected them to have a lot of money on their books because, you know, it's Canada and it's hockey and, you know, it's, it's very lucrative and, you know, there's a lot of sponsorship deals and, you know, they host the World Juniors. They make a lot of man- money for that, from that. So, you know, it was to be expected they would be one of the bigger sports organizations in Canada, if not the biggest, even though these things operate as nonprofits. Um, you know, they pay no taxes and they're technically nonprofits. What surprised us is how much money there was on the books, especially in the form of retained, essentially what analysts consider retained profit. Um, there's a key number that they look at for nonprofit organizations that they call net funding reserves. And basically what that is, is sort of retained profit grown over the years, surpluses that are kept around. Right. And what, what we found is that had grown from $28 million in 2003, which is you know, quite modest, to and, sorry, $21 million in 2003 to $143 million now. The other number that really jumped out at us was, you know, they have $153 million of assets on their books. Uh, in that is $118 million worth of investments. So bonds and stocks and things like that that are kept around and earning more money. Um, and that's 14 times higher than it was in 2003. Okay. Which is really a, a, quite a lot. And, you know, a lot of that has been built through registration fees. Okay, so that's what I was wondering. Where did this money come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know they they get their money from a number of places. Uh, registration fees paid by Canadians, you know, parents and players across the country. You know, they have quite lucrative sponsorship deals. You know, the ones the sponsors have pulled out of this year because of the the controversy over the the alleged sexual assault case that has you know they're now being questioned about their handling of that. You know, sponsors have pulled out, but those deals are, are quite lucrative over the years hosting tournaments, things like that, and then they get, um, you know, some government funding on top of that. So 
all of that, um, you know, is there the sort of pool of money that, that is coming in the door. Um, I think what, what has surprised a lot of people about that is, you know, really how much money they retain on their books that just keeps building, you know, this, this sort of massive financial um, empire, if you want yeah. to call it that, that they have. What else I found so interesting about your piece, too, is how it really singled out Hockey Canada as separating itself from other sports-related organizations. Like, they clearly put themselves in a different class, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what was really interesting is, um, you know, they had uh, retired Supreme Court Judge Thomas Cromwell come in and do a governance review of them. And people weren't really sure what to expect from that, you know. And, um, you know, what would he find? What would he determine? And he really pulled no punches in his analysis of them. Went a lot further than anybody thought he would. And, and, and basically, you know, he talked to their auditors who thought the reserves Hockey Canada keeps around in places are excessive. And he, he determined, essentially determined that too, basically saying, you know, the math and the reasons they say they need to keep this money around for don't really add up. You know, every organization keeps some money around for, you know, essentially a rainy day. Liabilities might come up. You might have to set some aside if you, if you think you're going to face lawsuits on certain things, which Hockey Canada certainly does. Uh, but the auditors and, you know, Justice Cromwell both thought this is a lot of money and the reasons you say you keep it around for don't really add up here. And that, that was interesting. That's, I think that would be different from if you were to go through the books on a lot of organizations. You know, you have to have a reason for keeping reserves around. It can't just be, you know, a massive amount in these nonprofits. But, but that's essentially what, what Justice Cromwell and the auditors thought. Okay, and what has been the response from Hockey Canada about this? Well, when I asked them, you know, why do you keep these large reserves around? They said just that, you know, we, we keep them around to, to ensure that the operation, you know, can, can, can go forward and isn't affected by, you know, unforeseen events and things like that. But really, it, it came down to, you know, I, I, I think the financial experts that we had looking at these numbers were surprised just how, for a nonprofit, how profitable they were. Yeah, exactly. So have they talked at all about like what they're doing with this money, what's going to happen? Like why do they have so much on their books? Well, that's that, that's interesting. You know, in in Justice Cromwell's report, he connected a lot of dots that the rest of us couldn't really do. We could see the balance sheet and money being moved around in certain ways, and he in in his access to the organization and he could compel the people who run it to talk and answer questions. He connected dots in how they were moving the money. And essentially what they were doing is moving money from funds into other obscure places on their books, essentially to keep it aside. And they, what he said in his report was Hockey Canada didn't want to appear to be an organization that had deep pockets. Now, the reason they were worried about that was they, said, they told him, you know, maybe sponsors won't write as big of checks if they knew, you know, how much money we had, or maybe we're in legal negotiations and, you know, we don't have as much leverage because people know that we have a lot of money on our books. They, they were concerned about appearing to have a lot of money, so they were moving, moving money around on the books essentially to not appear as, as, as wealthy as they are. And I think that revelation in, in his report, you know, when you connect them to these financials, it, 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 it says a lot. It certainly does say a lot. Okay, so what are the next steps here? Is there, is there more documentation for you to take a look at? 
Well, it's interesting. There's, we're seeing a lot of documentation on Hockey Canada come out um, over the past few months and in the months ahead because they are you know, appearing at more hearings in Ottawa. So I think the next thing we'll see is on November 15th, there'll be, there'll be more hearings of Hockey Canada executives compelled to you know, testify. And you know, this began as questions about their, their handling of the alleged sexual assault from 2018 and essentially, okay, why wasn't that properly investigated? Where did the money come from to pay the settlement that they paid? And, and you know, who, essentially who, foot the, who footed the bill for that? And the answers initially back in you know, May and June and July were very opaque. And that has basically prompted more questions about their finances. So what we're seeing is over time, really all the questions being pointed to their books and how the money's managed. And I think at the next set of hearings, we'll see questions about that because, you know, there's been questions raised about how they're spending money at the director and executive level. You know, there's been allegations of like, you know, money spent on gold rings for the directors. Every time they win a championship, everybody gets gold rings and, you know, lavish dinners for the board and things like that. And, you know, so this has become a real sort of follow the money type of story. No kidding. That, that ring aspect of it never fails to make me shake my head when I hear that. Uh, Grant, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. That's Grant Robertson, Globe and Mail senior writer. Check out his latest piece. It's in the Globe and Mail. It's at theglobeandmail.com. It's a piece called Numbers Game. And it is a deep dive into the audited records of Hockey Canada and clearly the vast amount of money that they seem to have on their books, that they seem to have developed on their books in the last 20 years. Uh, And it is a fascinating look at where that money is and what they are doing with it. So check it out, globemail.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it certainly didn't look this way a year ago when we were talking about the potential demise or downfall of the cruise ship industry here on the South Coast. Turns out that didn't happen at all. The Port of Vancouver is already looking ahead to the 2023 cruise ship season because the last sailing of 2022 is leaving today, as a matter of fact. So the final ship of the year wraps up the first cruise season, obviously, since the COVID-19 pandemic had that hiatus. Well, according to the port, the 2022 season marked a record year. That is 306 ships visited our city, a 6% increase compared to 2019. And not just Vancouver, they saw similar numbers like this over in Victoria. So what do we attribute this turnaround to? Ian Robertson is with us now, CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Simi. Do those Vancouver numbers surprise you at all? No, not at all. Uh, you know, we've seen similar numbers. Of, uh, in fact, we're just finishing off our season tomorrow as our last ship in. And when it's all said and done, our ship calls will be up 28 uh, percent versus 2019, uh, making us, uh, you know, again, one of the busiest uh, port of calls in Canada, 330 calls. So, yeah, it's incredibly busy. Uh, we had those numbers on the books. And uh, what remained to be seen, though, was how full the ships would be. Uh, but all in all, it's been a very successful season. Okay, and do you collect feedback from the guests too, like after they've walked around the city and seen things? Because obviously you want to know what their impressions are. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because what we hear the most of is, gee, I wish I spent more time in Victoria. <laughs> a lot of the ships are coming in uh, and spending anywhere from eight to four hours here, and especially the ones that come in for four hours, it's barely a stop. And so, uh, you know, when I'm down on the terminal welcoming the guests uh, from their day in Victoria, 
what I hear often is, gee, I wish I spent more time here. And we say, well, you got to give that feedback to your cruise line. So it's all good, but uh, we're, we're in planning mode now uh, for 2023. Ian, are you telling me you actually go down there and talk to people? You're the CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbor Authority. Are you greeting guests down there? Oh, for sure. It's, it's like it's a highlight of my day. I try to go down at least once a week and welcome a ship in and, uh, and then also try and get down there uh, when the guests are coming back on the taxis because I really do want their feedback about how they felt about uh, their experience in Victoria and how we can work with the stakeholders in the city to improve it. So, yeah, it's important, but it's, it's, it's the fun part of my job. Do you think there are still things that Vancouver and Victoria can improve? Like we can't just say, oh, well, look, at they all came back. It's fine now. Yeah, you know what? I, I can't really speak for Vancouver. Having lived there and having worked in the tourism industry in Vancouver, uh, Vancouver's got a lot of things going for it. Uh, there's no question. And uh, uh, I, I'm sure they would say there's areas that they can improve upon, but you know, that's up to them. For, that, for us, I think it's about continuing to market the destination. And, and we're talking about now shifting our marketing strategy away from, you know, not, not away, but instead of going to the cruise lines and saying, hey, Victoria's a great port, they know that we're a very very efficient port for them to come into. I think it's about focusing in on the travel agents and convincing the travel agents that they need to convince the passengers that that Victoria should be a part of their itinerary. And so how do you do that? Then do you say, like, dock in Victoria and stay for a couple of days? Or do you have to convince the cruise ship lines of that? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. And it it is a bit of a chicken and egg. I think it's, uh, first of all, uh, being a business development guy myself, it's about creating demand. So I think it is about... uh, uh, getting that that groundswell of support from the travel agents and the and the actual passengers to say to the cruise lines, you know, we want to pick an itinerary that does give us Alaska. We know that's what it's all about. But at the end of the day, we also want one that gives us time to spend in Victoria because it's a very different experience than the than the than the ports of call in Alaska. Right. So, what can Victoria do then to get ready for all of that? Well. Again, it just uh, you know we're restarting uh, this year after being uh, being out of the business for a couple of years. For us, uh, this has been about getting back to basics, uh, and we've done that, and we've done that very very well. I'm proud of everyone that's uh, worked with us. I think it's now setting the plans in place to uh, to you know, go after and attract the travel agents, go to the travel agents, and uh, and uh, begin a, a plan to. You know, help them sell Victoria as a destination. Is there room in Victoria for this? Like, what about staffing issues? What about all of yeah. that employee shortage? Yeah, that's been a real concern. It was certainly uh, is is it was very prominent at the start of the season, and it was actually we were quite I think fortunate in that at the beginning of the season, the ships were only thirty forty percent full, uh, and that that uh, was fine by us because it allowed us to to kind of staff up on the, on the motor coach side of finding drivers, you know, taxis has always been an issue. And as we, as the season kind of progressed, we, I, I think we've got a, a better control over that, but that will always be a challenge. It is reaching that balance between how do you continue to sustainably grow uh, the business here in Victoria. And I think that's really on our front of front and center for us, because next year we're going to be, you know, we'd be knocking on the door of just over 1 million passengers, and uh, that, that's, a, that's a large number. And when you get three ships in, a, in at once, as we do in Victoria on a Friday, Saturday night, yeah, congestion can be an issue. So we need to really manage that appropriately. Do you worry about competition from other ports of call, perhaps on the West Coast? 
Uh, you know what? I don't look at it as competition. For me, it's 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 all about crews in British Columbia, and uh, I'm I'm real happy that Prince Rupert had a record year. And if it takes away a few calls from us, I'm okay with that because we're very fortunate in the number of ship calls that we have. I attend conferences down in the U.S. and 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 around the world. Uh, at least when I could travel, I did. But anyway, the, right. the point is is that a lot of the ports of call would just are so envious of us and would even welcome even a third of the business we have. So I'm, 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 we're blessed here. And, 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 I, and for me, it's about just, you know, exposing British Columbia and all of the ports of call that we have here to, to cruise guests. What about those American ports of call now that the rules have kind of changed? So if they really wanted to, they could skip us, right? Well, they can't now. I mean, they still can't. That was always a threat uh, a year ago. Uh, and we're going to continue to watch the Passenger Vessel Services Act, which is part of the Jones Act. We'll watch that very closely. But we work, uh, we work very closely uh, with the ports of call up and down the West Coast. Uh, we support each other. We, we share information and uh, we have a good relationship with all of them. So another year ahead, what do you do in this couple of months of uh, time off you've got between ships? Yeah, well, I think it's a time for us to, uh, for example, I'll be in Vancouver later today uh, for meetings with the cruise lines, uh, and then I'm heading down to Florida in the next two weeks to talk about uh, how how the year has gone, uh, learn about some of the operational challenges and what we could do better, and then begin to plant the seed about spending uh, spending more time in Victoria, and then uh, and then I think that we've got more meetings coming up uh, in the spring. So it's a busy time for us to connect with our cruise line partners. Can't stop. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you, Simi. Ian Robertson, CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority, talking about the record-breaking year Vancouver and Victoria had for the number of cruise ships that arrived. And a year ago, we were talking about the cruise ship industry being in tatters, that the government wasn't doing enough to support it. And boy, did it ever bounce back in a big way. Why do you think that is? What is it? Like, I know people out there love to go on a cruise. You tell me, what do you love about it? This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, there was an all-party committee in the legislature that was tasked with looking into drug toxicity in our province and our ongoing overdose crisis. Well, that all-party committee came back with 37 recommendations to government. Uh, things like a substantial increase in publicly funded, evidence-based and accredited treatment and recovery beds and outpatient services. But is it enough? Well, BC Green Party leader Sonia Fersno was a member of the committee. We're going to find out what she thinks about it now. She joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Uh, first of all, can you tell us about the things that you learned while being on this committee? Yeah, and I can encourage people not only to read the report, but everything that we heard is on the record. And so if you can go to the BC Legislature website and see all of the input that we got, hear it or read it. Uh, some of the things that we learned, the misconceptions about who is impacted by the drug toxicity crisis. We often see depictions on the news of people on the street or in a tent uh, but most people who are dying from the toxic drugs in BC are young men dying at home. Uh, indigenous people are disproportionately impacted by this crisis. Uh, their substance use is driven by ongoing colonialism, racism, intergenerational trauma. We heard over and over again that mental health supports are lacking in this province, they're underfunded, they're very difficult to access, and so the preventative piece when it comes to mental health is uh, very hard for people to get access to. 
Uh, overdose prevention sites, drug checking are critical to preventing deaths, but a lot of communities around BC do not have these services, largely due to resistance um, in those communities. And we heard a lot about safe supply. We heard from doctors, health experts, medical health officers, practitioners, community workers, people who use drugs that safe supply can work. Um, and But there's a lot of challenges to the current model which requires a prescription, and there are not a lot of prescribers. The number has gone up, um, but it's uh, it's very hard to access for people and has a lot of barriers. Now, I know that you have said that you feel that these recommendations don't go far enough. Why is that? Well, when I look at the coroner's reports uh, from 2018, a lot of our, our, our recommendations really echo the coroner's report from 2018, and that's specifically around regulation of treatment and uh, addiction recovery in BC. It's an unregulated field right now. It's not evidence-based, and so it's really leaving it up to people uh, to kind of protect their own safety in that system, and I think there really is a need. It's a health service and should be regulated as such. And then you go to the coroner's report from 2022, this spring, that really was what prompted government to agree to bringing this committee together. And her number one report, the death panel reviews, number one recommendation in that report was really uh, make safe supply available uh, and scale up the response. And we heard that over and over again, that the scale of this crisis, um, that uh, the current scale of safe supply, prescribed safe supply, cannot meet uh, the scale. And just to humanize this, and I think this is really important that we continually humanize this crisis. Uh, On the weekend, five teenagers got together for a sleepover, uh, used some drugs that they had bought, and one of them died. She's 18-year-old Kylie Walker. Um, She's the grandniece of a friend of mine, Joe Thorne, who's a uh, Cowichan Tribes member and a uh, member of the school district up in Cowichan. And he drove around on Friday night uh, telling youth in Duncan that the toxic supply of drugs was deadly and that they, that, you know, not to use it. That was his, you know, yeah. his response to losing his grandniece. That's The terrible. mother of, of a 25-year-old Aubrey who's been running a marathon around the Ministry of Health Uh, for weeks now, trying to raise attention. Her son had just graduated from college uh, and used uh, toxic drugs and died. And I think it's it's really important that we recognize that these are people with full lives. These are people that are loved and uh, they are dying from a very poisonous, very toxic drug supply. But how do we get that message through to them, the people who do casually use and then become victims? Yeah, that's that's an important part of, of this conversation we're having right now, Simi. And, and one of the recommendations in the report is around uh, education about the toxic drug supply in the school system. We heard that from a lot of presenters uh, who work on this kind of front, and Guy Felicella, for example, that he goes into schools and there really is a lack of knowledge amongst young people around the, the dangers and risks of the supply. And uh, I think that it's important that, that people understand that this isn't people who are using every day. They're not the only ones who are dying. Uh, it's people using recreationally, people using occasionally, and in some cases, people using for the first time in their lives.
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate that. Thank you, Simi. That's Sonia Firstenau, BC Green Party leader. She was a member of this all-party legislature committee looking into our toxic drug crisis. Now, there were 37 recommendations made by this committee to government, uh, things like substantial increase in publicly funded and accredited treatment, you know, more recovery beds, outpatient services, like lots of different things. But Sonia Firstenau feels that it didn't go far enough, that there needs to be more done to slow down or stop this horrible toxic drug crisis that we have. This is Mornings with Simi. Today in the news, you will be hearing and seeing a lot about the funeral of RCMP Constable Shaylin Yang. It is held this morning at 11 o'clock, but there is a lot to know leading up to that, what we're going to see, uh, what's going to happen today. So we thought, let's get an update from Janet Brown, our Global News CKNW reporter who joins us now. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Yes, uh, I'm just outside the Richmond Oval where the funeral will be held, as you say, at 11 o'clock this morning. But things get going at around 9.30 with the regimental parade. Um, right now, I can see vehicles pulling into the underground parking lot at the Richmond Oval. Uh, barriers are starting to go up on nearby roadways. And we're also starting to see police officers in uniform arriving here, uh, namely the RCMP in their brilliant red surge. And uh, residents are urged and encouraged to come out to watch this uh, procession, this march, this parade before the funeral this morning. And people are also encouraged to wear red, the red of the RCMP, which of course Constable Yang was a member of the Burnaby RCMP for roughly less than three years. Uh, as I say, this is a regimental funeral, and a regimental funeral is accorded to a member of the RCMP who died in the line of duty, and of course they involve a variety of regimental elements, uh, semi-customs, traditions, and as I say, they typically include a procession, and that procession getting underway at 9.30. Now, uh, for motorists in the area, people trying to get from point A to point B. The parade muster point is at the BCIT parking lot on Russ Baker Way in Richmond. It will head south on Russ Baker. It'll go over the Dinsmore Bridge, out to Gert Road, uh, turning onto River Road, and then eventually heading towards the Richmond Olympic Oval. And it will be a sight to see because there are over 2,000 people participating in this uh, procession march semi. Uh, there will be representatives Presentation from several municipal BC police forces, various RCMP detachments from around the province, of course, police forces from right across Canada, even Washington State, as well as uh, personnel are coming from the Canada Border Services Agency, the Armed Forces, Ambulance Service, BC sheriffs, and firefighters. I just saw a couple of members of the Canada Border Services Agency pass me here near the Oval. Now, that's 2,000 participating in that March semi. You can imagine, and a beautiful, spectacular day, as is in the forecast today, a, a lot of those members will be from the RCMP in their red surge. Now, at least 1,500 other people will be joining these marchers inside the Richmond Oval for the funeral service, which gets underway at 11 a.m. Now, there will be no media or cameras allowed into the Richmond Oval for the service at uh, Constable Yang's family's request. But, uh, of course, our coverage, Global BC One, will be getting under at 9.30. And as I say, people who also want to pay their respects in person 
can come out and uh, join and watch the funeral procession go by. Uh, as I say, it's going to be good weather. Uh, so that's that's good that's compared nice. to a, a devastating downpour. So, yeah, it's I, going to be quite the day for sure. I can imagine it'll be very, very emotional for sure. And I can imagine there'll be quite a few members of the public who would want to uh, turn out just to see this and be a part of it. Do we know anything about how the funeral service is going to go? Uh, we do know, Simi, and I do have those details, but unfortunately they are embargoed until 9.30 this All morning. Right, so sense, yeah. at that time we will be releasing that information. Okay, well that makes sense, of course. Okay, so this sounds like officers have been coming from right across the country for this. They absolutely are right across the country. And as I say, even Washington State, maybe, maybe other states across the United States as well. But uh, expected inside the Richmond Oval, close to 4,000 people will be taking in, in this uh, funeral. It could go over an hour, we're told, uh, maybe up to 90 minutes altogether. Uh, also a note, Simi, because we are so close in proximity to the airport, uh, travelers are advised that the YVR South Terminal will still be accessible, but uh, travelers should plan ahead for, of course, un unexpected delays because of the traffic congestion. And also parking near the Templeton SkyTrain station, uh, we are being told, may also be impacted. And that will go from a roughly 8 o'clock this morning until about 1.30 in the afternoon. So roads in and around the Richmond Oval, the Dinsmore Bridge, Rustbaker Way, watch out for massive congestion. And as I say, give yourself plenty of time yes. to get to YVR or the South terminal as well. That is good advice. All right, Janet, thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Thank you, Simi.